This is Five and Nine, a podcast at the crossroads of magic, work, and economic justice. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 1. That was a ragtime episode composed by Paul Eno and performed by Fred Van Epps in 1911. It's music that would have been popular during the time of the creation of the Rider-Waite-Smith deck and comes from the Library of Congress's National Jukebox. This is Anna Mina, a.k.a. An Shao, producer at Five and Nine. This is Xiao Wei, creative director and director of magic at Five and Nine. This is Dorothy, director of magic at Five and Nine. We've been burning the candle at both ends, pulling all-nighters, working really, really hard to produce this season for you all. <laughs> <laughs> season three we decided is a series on rest oh the irony but you know what i thought of spirit speak they did an apparition tarot deck and one of my favorite representations that i've ever seen of the ten of wands and i think i've shared this with the two of you is a, a face and then it's crying and the tears are putting out the candles. And the reason why I'm bringing this up with the two of you is when a, a Ten of Wands comes up in a reading, I always ask someone, are you resting? Do you have rituals for that? And how, if not, <laughs> well, let's talk about it. Because this card is an indication that maybe the universe is trying to tell you that that's not part of your daily life or, or that's something you need more of. But I wanted to share that with you two as a start because it almost symbolizes for me the antithesis of rest. I feel like rest is so hard because it's just not something that we're conditioned to or taught how to do. It's very ironic that rest is hard. <laughs> I don't know. It just always reminds me too of like when you're trying to like, you know, when you're practicing Buddhism or you're trying to meditate, it's like... Ugh, this is so hard. It's like, should be simple, but it's not. And I also feel like resting is something that like we innately, like as children, <laughs> know how to do really, really well. Like where you just see kids passed out or like, you know, not doing anything, just like, you know, resting really hard. But then, you know, we're conditioned to like not know how to do it or forget how to do it as adults. I've been studying yoga and getting ready for teacher training. And one of my um, instructors a little while back asked, what, what's the hardest yoga pose? A lot of people will say, you know, maybe it's the headstand or it's the backbend, you know, all these acrobatic poses. And, and the answer, of course, is, is savasana. It's the, the resting pose, final pose that in many yoga studios people do, where they're just lying down on your back. And it's one of the hardest because you have to be able to maintain that while in a meditative state, not allowing your mind to wander, to think about other things. And I find that just so kind of illustrative of kind of what we're talking about, just how hard it is to rest, to pause. In some ways, it's easier in a yoga practice to be doing the headstand, doing all these movements because your mind is occupied um, with something difficult, physically difficult. When you're trying to rest, that's actually, at least in my experience, that's when the mind really wakes up and it's like kind of creating things to worry about, things for you to think about, even if your body's at rest. In so many ways, your mind then becomes uh, the really active agent at that point. Something that made me think about Anna, and Savasana is my favorite pose personally, because I'm like, oh, great. I, don't, I just have to lie here. I feel like I make those associations of why people feel that they need to be vigilant, because that's what that kind of speaks to, this this inability to to just lay and 
be in a meditative pose with vigilance and how we, we even hear it in anecdotal or, you know, um, don't rest on your laurels. You know, I don't really use that phrase, but you know, that that's something you, you have to strike while the iron's hot. There's always something that's telling you, you have to stay vigilant and you have to be ready. And I always connect that to vulnerability because when you rest, it means that there's a trust of your surroundings. And I say this because I remember telling someone, it was like a, you know, long drive, you know, a road trip. And someone asked me, uh, oh, do you need to rest? I can, I can take over. And I said, no. And the reason I said no is because it's really difficult for me to trust another person driving. If I fall asleep, it makes me uncomfortable. I don't even like falling asleep in other people's homes. For me personally, and I don't want to speak for anyone else, obviously, but rest means that I'm, I feel safe. And who feels safe in this country? I so deeply appreciate you bringing that up, Dorothy, because especially as rest becomes this more popular theme, I fear it falling into the same kind of individual like BS that hustle culture <laughs> did, you know, where it's like, how do you rest? Everyone should just rest, blah, blah, blah. But it's very real that, you know, not everyone has the conditions for rest, you know, whether that includes like just the basics of being in a safe, warm home, being in a space where you can literally close your eyes and feel safe. It reminds me of some of the you know, newer meditation teachers, they acknowledge that and they say, like, close your eyes if you're able to and feel safe doing so. And so there's no one way to rest. But it also, I think that acknowledging rest as creating the conditions in which everyone can rest um, really allows for just a different dialogue. And I think it's really connected to the concept of economic justice, right? That it's not just about putting like this pressure on us as individuals, like, oh, I need to rest better. Or how can I like optimize our sleep schedule? And I think we're really talking about something that is connected to, you know, the collective. It reminds me of a, of a line in Trisha Hersey's book about arrest as resistance, where she talks about her, her grandmother, you know, being still. And just because you're still, it doesn't mean that you're still, it doesn't mean that you're not a active in the mind or in your heart or that you're not thinking, you know, cause I think that's what makes it also difficult that rest can look different ways too. That sometimes it is just looking out the window, <laughs> you know, and being intentional and thoughtful, but maybe not having rushed thoughts, breathing. Obviously this is the reason why a lot of people, including myself and, you know, you know, meditate this one time, you know, I was, dating someone. It was like years ago. And he said, Hey, do me a favor, go to the couch and then lay down. And then he said, uh, put your hands behind your head. And then I, I did it. And then he said, my God, I've never seen you look more uncomfortable. <laughs> and I said, this feels so unnatural. I don't, I don't even rest this way. But I think the point of it, he was trying to get me to rest and, and notice that my body couldn't even, it wasn't even pliable to the, to the position of rest. It was just 
this made me, this doesn't make me feel good. And I always remember that story because I'm very different now. I think rest is very important. I almost feel that, you know, we've said that word so many times already, and maybe in and of itself, that becomes some kind of incantation of not just needing it, but willing it and being willful in in that pursuit. It's interesting to think about that much. One has to plan for rest these days. I think, you know, in some societies today, like rest is kind of baked in, right? And kind of siesta culture, cultures where there, there is this kind of afternoon time of, of rest. And I think it's such a, a funny way to talk about it, but I feel like rest is like an active thing that one must choose to do, one must plan for, make, make the space for. Um, certainly in our current society, in much of current society where the default, the norm, but also the necessity of economic survival requires um, and certain, and or at least creates a lot of pressure and conditions for not resting, for staying active, for always being on the hunt for the next gig, um, for always making sure that you are, you know, continue to be employable. I think about the uh, the four swords and the kind of the Rider Waite Smith depiction of it as a person in a knight's armor um, with swords pointing at them um, and one sword at rest. But that is one of the canonical forms of rest depicted in the tarot. And it's very much an active thing, though. It's this is a person wearing their armor. Battle is still kind of present. It does feel to me like uh, if you don't plan for it, it will not happen because otherwise it's very easy to just kind of get swept up in the day-to-day, the minute-by-minute. Yeah, and I feel like it's maybe only this year that I've realized what a sense of what rest is, like scrolling on my phone or like doing things that, you know, they feel great or like looking at beautiful things online. That all feels really good, but it turns out it's not rest. (laughs) And it's like, you know, exactly that stillness as Dorothy mentioned and that feeling of nourishment. I do think also, yeah, one thing too is this concept of striving. And one thing, at least I can't speak for others or have any grand theory about this, but one thing that I'm really trying to do this year is to be more self-aware around when do I need to do something versus when do I want to do something. And a lot of the times for me to reckon with the amount of privilege I've had um, and continue to have and where I'm, you know, at with my career and all these things, I'm like, actually, a lot of the times I don't need to do something. (laughs) Like I could just let it go a little bit more. But I think there's always a sense of like, oh, I need to strive. And this is probably something that Gen Z like already knows already. And now I just sound like a millennial girl boss. (laughs) I couldn't help but think of, you know, the story that my mom would tell me about my personality when I was growing up. she, She would always say, you just like cruising along. You you could get straight A's, but you don't because you pick and choose what you want to learn and what you want to be good at. Yeah. (laughs) That's just like, I mean, isn't that life? You know, I didn't realize that I had that type of wisdom. And this kind of goes back to what the two of you were saying earlier. I think, Shawe, you were mentioning how children are just so innately, you know, aware of I'm tired. So I'm going to plop down here. I don't care who's around. I'm just going to sleep or take a nap. It kind of reminds me, you know, Anna, of what you said about being valued or valuable or 
productive, like a productive body in society. The irony now is that my mom always says to me, Anak, Anak is child in Tagalog. Anak, you need to rest. Or, you know, how do you sleep? <laughs> do you do you sleep? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm proud of you. And I, I, I understand why you work so hard, but I'm worried about you. And I'm scared. And I think that that's the correlation that I think all of us are seeing is what happens when you don't take time aside to be reflective, reflexive, contemplative, to be still is there is this direct correlation to being sick. I don't know. I I don't think, I, I think it's very obvious this country is horrific at creating systems and ecosystems that actually allow us to care for ourselves and other people in a way that I think that harkens back to these other systems that know so much of how to do that. You know, and even in the, in my Filipino family, you know how to take care of one another and yourself. I'm going back to a lot of that as I'm aging and maturing. We have a class coming up, Tarot for Writers, with the uh, Shipment Agency, starting in February. It's a class taught by uh, Dorothy Shaway and I. We'll be looking at writing about creative nonfiction with tarot. We'll be looking at building a tarot practice, and also just how to market oneself as an art, as a writer or a creative. I mean, I can totally talk about a couple of the classes that I'm leading. So one of them is Tarot for Beginners, where, you know, we talk about the greatest hits. So obviously being inspired and pulling from Mary Kay Greer, Rachel Pollock, Benabel Wan, these various tarot scholars of which, you know, I don't want, I don't want to speak for Shaway and Anna, but that have definitely inspired me and my own understanding of the symbolism imagery and the history of tarot. We cover the elements you know, such as the suits and the court cards and what numerology entails, you know, what, what is, what does an ace mean versus what the 10 means and, you know, signifier cards, et cetera. And then, you know, I have exercises that we'll go through related to those elements. And then also thinking about, you know, how, how does one develop a regular tarot practice and making associations to, you know, different astrological correspondences and, you know, even down to the days of the week, you know, Sundays for sun, Mondays for the moon, and what those types of correspondences to tarot can actually, how they lend themselves really well to developing not just a regular tarot practice, but a regular writing practice as well. Yeah. And then for some of the classes that I'm leading, uh, tarot for creative nonfiction, artists, magicians in power, we'll be doing actually a bunch of readings and really going through the elements of creative nonfiction. So thinking about things like, you know, point of view, different ways of structuring the narrative. And I think tarot is a really helpful tool to help with that, both in terms of providing new perspectives, as well as, you know, what surfacing uh, different characters that might be in the story. And, you know, people use it often for fiction, but I actually use it in writing nonfiction for myself. So what I mean by this is, you know, I was doing a lot of archival research and, you know, history is a story of people. And within that, I was using tarot as a way of setting up these archetypes or characters um, throughout history. 
And I think, you know, just, I think that already helps make a piece more engaging to have character, to have this, you know, story-driven narrative as part of it. And I'll be talking about heroin branding strategy, which I know a lot of writers and creatives are kind of nervous about that idea of branding strategy. And we'll be breaking that down into what does that really mean? And to me, solid branding is about the story. And that's really the comfort zone of writers. The strength of writers is telling a story. And so we'll be looking at how tarot can help you understand your story better as a writer, but then also how it can be communicated um, to others in a way that's clear, that's understandable, that resonates for them. Because in the end, many writers do rely on branding strategy, whether it's explicit or implicit, to get the word out about the work that they're doing. And so we'll be looking at that, looking at some of the strategies, and then using tarot as kind of an entry point to break down the narrative that writers will tell about themselves to themselves, and then transform that narrative, hopefully, into a story about themselves that really helps people understand where your work comes from, why you write, and why they should be reading what you're doing. So five classes. It's really us kind of downloading and sharing a lot of our thoughts and experiences with tarot and all of our writing practices through all of these different lenses. Um, and it's kind of a bonus uh, that we're excited to offer is uh, stickers. We have some new stickers for five and nine. We have a moon calendar, 2023, and we have five and nine guests, Helen Shiwolf-Tseng, their quarantine. It's a participatory workbook and zine of prompts, rituals, and tarot exercises will also be available for all the students who sign up. The class is going to be awesome. It is a bargain. <laughs> so please, please sign up. You get not only one instructor, but three of us. And also we, you know, are just really excited to meet all the students who are going to be part of the class and learn from you all as well. Or should we talk about everything everywhere all at once? Yes. I mean, I'm just like, every time I think of the movie, I immediately feel like I want to start crying because it's so good. And then also just the award ceremonies that and speeches and, you know, just the actors talking about their journey through Hollywood has also been equally amazing. Yeah, same reaction. That story was very emotional. And I, I feel like I bring up my mom so much. But yeah, duh, she's my mother. I, I remember coming out to my mom. I remember telling her I had a, you know, at the time I had a girlfriend and so many of those, those moments in the movie feeling like I had to traverse in my mind, these different multiverses of this is the reaction I want. This is the reaction I got. This is the life that I want to leave. This is the life she wants me to lead. You know, it's like that we're all so complex and fragmented, but whole at the same time. That's what that, film made me think of and some of the criticism I've heard is just like oh you know it's just the same kind of thing that we hear all the time well it's not I don't really understand the story or you know the the relationship between the mother and daughter doesn't really make sense to me it's just like well okay well number one then it's not for you but it's bigger and more abstract than that I think there's so much language I didn't have with my own mom that that film reminded me of why because there were so many multiverses she had to traverse in her own life and almost like deal with her own fragmentation of being, you know, this young woman come, coming from this, you know, provincial life, poor family, having to immigrate 
and and fracturing in so many ways, you know, emotionally and psychologically to survive. And I feel those are the things that really spoke to me in the movie. Watching the kind of Golden Globe recognitions that brought Michelle Yeoh and Kahui Kwan, just, just just incredible recognition, at least in the national, maybe international kind of stage for entertainment. And part of it was like, I think to your point, Dorothy, that I thought was so compelling about the film was it took these ordinary folks, right? The, there's this aspiration that was kind of a through line in the film of, was it uh, doing laundry <laughs> and doing taxes that, as, as an expression of a very um, stable sort of love under very humble circumstances. I just found so touching, right? That the superheroes, the superheroes were not these people with, well, in some, in some of the multiverses, right? They have these incredible powers, but at least in one of them, they were just, just ordinary folks doing their thing. Uh, living their lives and uh, kind of had these extraordinary intersections with other versions of themselves, other versions of what is possible. It makes me think of like, why, why is multiverse as a, as a kind of film trope, why is it popular now? And I think it gets to something you said, Dorothy, which is we are in this state of the world where we're all kind of imagining other ways of being both politically, right? There's, there's different ways that many people see the world at the moment, but then there's also for ourselves. Uh, there. I think we've gotten used to this idea, well, well if I'd gone this way, it might have gone played out this way. If I'd gone in that other direction, it might have played out that other way. And it's and this film has just really captured all those tensions in this really, really beautiful way through very relatable um, very relatable characters. And and to see the actors themselves also being relatable um, as people who had not seen a lot of recognition until just about now is is also kind of an incredible moment, both for the film as film, but also for the actors. Yeah, I will say even just stylistically, I love the film. Like, although I will say for every person I've met who says they didn't like the film, I'm like, we're no longer friends. <laughs> but some criticisms of the film, it's like, oh, it's like too, it's like too over the top or it's too cheesy or something like that. And I also just love like this like beautiful, cool, like queer Asian aesthetic that's going on through the film, like the costumes and just like the combination of like campiness plus like these beautiful like objects and things and scenes. It's just really, really cool to see on screen. I remember watching it with my partner and, and thinking the first thing I thought actually was, oh, this reminds me of Turn Down for What? We realized, oh, the Daniels did do that video which I didn't even realize until, you know, it was a DJ Snake and Lil John, And that was exactly one of the reasons why I loved the cinematography as well. What I think people forget is that sometimes the point comes across way better when something is almost hyperbolic, not just in words or actions, but also in aesthetic. That if there is some kind of campiness to it, sometimes that is, well, for me, effective. And I love the kind of absurdist, uh, surreal nature of the film. Because, hey, guess what? When you witness your immigrant mom trying to survive, that's pretty fucking absurdist, actually. And excuse the expletive. I just felt like I had to get my point across. But my point is, is that, that people always say, oh, there's, there's something not universal about this. Like, who can understand it? Well, why? For so long, everything has been catered to a white gaze and for white people to understand, yes. well, this is, you know, this is how the rest of the world works. 
And I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Matthew Celestis, the fiction writer who wrote uh, Craft in the World and this really beautiful book on writing. I think one of the reasons why, yeah, Craft in the Real World, sorry. But the reason why I bring up his book is because it reminds me so much of the way people talk about literature, that it needs to come from this perspective of the canon, the Western canon. So when I saw Everything Everywhere All at Once, this is one of those steps to me in filmmaking that starts to break through that because there's all, there's always canonical films and cinema that people want to compare to. I really love how Ocean Vong said, you know, back in 2019, I always quote them about being unfathomable, that sometimes being Asian American or API, that you need to be unfathomable because that is the way you just have to be relentless. And this film to me was that. And it was just, I don't know. I, I, and you're right, Shaway. I, I feel a lot of people who told me they didn't get it. I just thought, okay, well, it wasn't for you. And you're not my friend. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, actually, I have a question for you two. And I think it's also re maybe related to the movie is how much do you think the rest thing is also class-based? For example, my mom, she's just like, I don't know why you're working so hard. <laughs> And as someone who like, it's like, I think she has this like moment of recognition where she's like, oh, you know, I never went to college. I was like busting my ass so that my kids could have this better life. But really their better life just means like working way more than like, you know, her like job. And it's just this weird thing where I'm like, this is just what it means to be at a different like social class. I don't know how this is going to sound, but I, you know, I was a part of a fellowship and, you know, I, I got really emotional during this one conversation with other fellows because they were talking about, well, some of the fellows were talking about how they grew up going on camping trips or going skiing or going, I mean, talk about class skiing. I, I've never gone skiing in my life. Oh my it's so it is so expensive. And I was, I said, oh, I've never gone skiing in my life. My point is I remember making a comment to the group and I said, I didn't grow up like that. I didn't grow up going to nature. Actually, I always had an association that in order for me to go camping, to experience wildlife, I actually had, we had to come from money and we didn't, we didn't, we didn't, I didn't grow up like that. Depending on your, you know, not just upbringing, but your environment and what your environment actually, you know, what, what stimuli actually tell you, tell you and your body, this place is either safe or I need to work or I need to, you know, I can, I can hang back. And I think a lot of people do feel that way. Let me speak for myself, but I think it is in some cases for me personally, rest has been a class thing. Well, well, when I was growing up, we, we never had money to go on a vacation. Like we don't do those things. So when people talk about that, I, I didn't grow up like that. Here's the last thing I'll say. I always, I always tell people I also didn't celebrate Halloween and what, what does this have to do with rest? Okay, here, here it is. My mom never wanted me to, to walk around some strange neighborhood, even our own. And she said, Oh, you're, you're gonna, you're gonna hand out candy. <laughs> so I didn't, I, I actually never knew what it felt like to go around and say trick or treat. The first time I think I 
went trick-or-treating was in my 20s and it was very odd it was very strange I just I just thought to myself what's the big deal but I always had to hand out I always had to work so I couldn't have fun so to speak because when I was like why would you want to do that that's dangerous I'm like but there's all these other kids doing it with their parents anyway I think in my mom's eyes there was always work baked into everything until until recently I think now that she's a lot older, she's starting to see the value of what it means to take it easy, which is not something I think my mother really valued because of, you know, what you two have shared, always wanting to be and fight for this place in society and American culture to be seen as a productive member of society. This is just a plug to our listeners that I have also never gone skiing, so your membership supports the five and nine ski trip. <laughs> a bunch of grown ass adults skiing for the first time. Make that happen for us, please. We'll do we'll do even do a live recording of the whole session. <laughs> Bring our recorders and <laughs> we'll broadcast from atop of Mammoth Mountain. Five and Nine is an independent podcast and newsletter at the crossroads of magic, work, and economic justice. This show is produced by Dorothy Santos, Xiaowei Wang, and me, Anna Anshaomina. While this podcast is always free, if you enjoyed it, we invite you to buy us a virtual cup of coffee. You can subscribe on Substack for just $6 a month. You can also support us by signing up for our new class on Tarot for Writers with the Shipment Agency. Students in the program get a free subscription to the newsletter. Find us at thisis5and9.com and on Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we hope you can find a moment of rest amidst the difficulties of these times. Remember to breathe deeply, drink plenty of water, and take a moment of joy wherever and whenever you can. <laughs>